We're back in the Old Testament. And uh, does anyone find that at least certain parts of the Old Testament are kind of hard? Yeah? Is that anyone's experience here? By the way, I had George read chapter 2, verses 1 to, I think it was 17 there. But really, today's message encompasses Joel chapter 1 as well. I just didn't want to make George read all of that. So I'm going to try and summarize to you some of what we got in Joel chapter 1 here in just a minute. But yeah, the Old Testament can be kind of rough. God, does God ever seem different in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament? Does the God who promises that, hey, by the way, there is an army coming from the north and uh, the land will be like the Garden of Eden before them and like a desert waste behind them and, oh, yeah, they're coming for you. Does that sound like the God of the New Testament? Well, a lot of people have thought, no, those two things can't be reconciled. They can't be put back together. As a matter of fact, one of the earliest corruptions of Christianity is called Gnosticism, and it arose fully in in about the second or third century. And Gnosticism was really a combination of Christianity, Judaism, and Aristotelian philosophy. So you got lots of stuff going on there. And one of the key beliefs in Gnosticism was that the material world is, is at best inferior to the spiritual world, and maybe more likely the material world is actually evil. And so our job is to divorce ourselves from the material world and and just seek out the spiritual world. And I'm sorry, I said it's a combination of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Aristotelian philosophy. I was wrong. It's uh, Platonic philosophy, the philosophy of Plato. So if you're watching and you heard me make that mistake, uh, then you, uh, you know I fixed it here. It's okay. But one of the things, what did Gnosticism do with the God of the Old Testament? Because if you're keeping track, that God created the world. Well, they said the world is not so good. The world is a physical, material place. So they said, well, the God of the Old Testament, we're going to call him the Demiurge, and we're going to say he's actually kind of everything that's wrong with everything. Yeah, we still do that in the modern world. Whether we're Gnostics or not, there are a number of people who come to the Old Testament, they say, man, this God seems angry, and like he just wants to punish everybody. And I really prefer the God of the New Testament. But I'm here to tell you that that's not how any of this works, like the old lady says in the Geico commercial. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. No, the God of the Old Testament is the God who promised that there was a New Testament coming. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how Joel how the prophet Joel and his prophecies fit into who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So first of all, here's what I want you to know. We're going to start with Joel chapter 1 here. And in Joel chapter 1, it starts off this way. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What are they going to tell them? What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. You know, uh, 
We live in an agricultural area, of course. We're surrounded by orange groves here at the church on really three sides. They usually say two sides, but across the street we're surrounded too, aren't we? Got oranges everywhere, lemons uh, in Lemon Cove, believe it or not. We've got all sorts of produce that's growing everywhere. And produce has a number of of great enemies, doesn't it? Uh, Drought, which, by the way, we're going to hear about at the end of Joel chapter 1. But also insects, right? Insects. There are a lot of them that you could probably list off and that you could name, and you can say, if these get into my orchard or into my field, I might not be able to grow a crop this year. Or it may be you know, all my trees, my orange trees that have been around. George, your orange trees, what are they? They're like 110 years old, right? They've been there oh, 116 years old. But all it takes, if that Asian citrus psyllid made it into your orchard, they'd be they'd be gone. That'd be that. And maybe nothing was more fearsome in the ancient world than a plague of locusts. I don't know if you saw the the BBC special Planet Earth and the episode where it documented this giant locust swarm. And it was just locusts that were so thick, covering the ground, flying in the air. They could be seen, I think, from space. There were so many of them. And if you went out and looked, you, the, the fields would, look, would be colored by the locusts. All you would see was the locusts. And when the locusts left, they left nothing behind them. It was a disaster of epic proportions. And now the people of Israel, they didn't have things like free trade agreements where if, if your crop failed, you can go to the, the people across the sea or people somewhere else and you can import food. If your crop failed, there was a good chance that your family would starve. And Joel's saying, this has happened to God's people. The locusts have come and they have eaten everything. And it was so spectacular in the very worst way that he said, you are going to be talking about this forever and ever and ever. Uh, A lot of Fridays, uh, I join a group of gentlemen uh, from the church. Most of them are gentlemen. I'll let you decide who is or who isn't. But I join a group of gentlemen from the church. We go up to lunch. And one of my favorite parts of going up to lunch with the guys is they tell stories of old Lemon Cove before I got here, which is like almost all of Lemon Cove, except for the last eight years. But one of the most interesting stories is the story of the flood. Any of you heard about the the great flood in Lemon Cove? What was it, in the 50s, I think? 55. See, people, people know exactly the year. And as I understand it, everything was underwater from where the dam is now to Visalia, the whole corridor underwater. People still talk about it. The destruction, the devastation, just how spectacular something as great and terrible as that is. People still talk about it. Joel says, this is something you're going to talk about as well. And what are we to think? What were the people of Israel to think when this locust swarm came? Well, you hear something interesting that comes. You hear in verse 15, after he, uh, the prophet calls all these different groups of people to wail and to weep and to mourn, despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. And then in verse 15 it says, alas for that 
day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. You ever heard that uh, phrase before, the day of the Lord? It repeats throughout the Old Testament and the prophets. They speak all the time, the great and terrible day of the Lord. I had an interesting conversation with Joshua, who preached for us last weekend, where we were talking about how uh, this word uh, great and, te- and terrible Normally we say great, we mean what's well, a wonderful thing, but great also has this, kind, this meaning, this nuance of, of huge and enormous, and you can describe a disaster as great because it is great in its scope. It is enormous in its scope. You can talk about something good as being terrible at the same time because it is so good that it is weighty, that you feel it almost like gravity. And That's how the day of the Lord is spoken of, is a great and terrible day that's coming. But here's the surprise. Remember, who is Joel speaking to here? He's speaking to the people of Israel, to God's people. Now, in the abstract, we know that God can correct his people, right? You know that sometimes God's, okay, you know, you're not doing that right, and so I'm going to correct you. And if there's anything that we know about correction, it's that it's never pleasant. It doesn't matter how kindly someone phrases correction toward you. It doesn't matter how gently they speak. It doesn't matter how closely they hug. Correction hurts because it tells you you are wrong. You are wrong. And no one likes to hear that. God gives correction to his people. We know this in the abstract. But something strange happens when we look out into the world, doesn't it? We start going, man, I can't wait for God to judge those people. Ever experienced that? Yeah, you have. (laughs) I think we all have. Man, what they did was so bad. You know, God, you got to do something. That's a good prayer. We ought to pray that prayer. God, you know, justice, we, we need your justice in the midst of this. We need you to come and judge and make it right. See, in the abstract, we say, well, yeah, God can correct us. But in the concrete reality, we think, well, when's God going to correct them? And when God's correction comes to us, it's surprising. Say, really? Like, you didn't have someone else to deal with right now? I can think of 50 other people who are doing worse than I'm doing over here. We know in the abstract that God might want to correct us, but in the actual functioning of everyday life, we feel like, well, it's everyone else that God really needs to worry about. And Israel often had this problem too. And that's how I know that we can have that problem too. Because God doesn't record all of Israel's problems so he could look back on them and say, man, they were terrible at everything all the time but rather to warn us, look at what's in your heart as well. But we need to remember as well, as as an order of, of hermeneutics here, as an order of how we interpret this, that the Bible, although it is written for me, was not written to me. You've heard me say that before. And what I mean is that whatever this means, God intends to say something to me about that. But he said it first to someone else. So if I want to get it right, often I need to understand first what he said to that person so then I can understand what it means for me. And here's what we should understand with the people of Israel. 
God made a covenant with the people of Israel way back in the the very beginning, starting in the book of Genesis. He started uh, really with Abraham is the beginning of God's special covenant with his people. And he said, uh, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants, make you a great nation. He says all these great good things to them. And then, you know, the people of Israel, they, they kind of, they go through some good times, they go through some bad times, and eventually they're in slavery in Egypt. God sets them free. That's what this meal was originally oriented around, was the Passover, like we discussed. And then God gave a covenant to the nation of Israel through Moses. You remember that covenant? The, the covenant's basically Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's explaining this is what that covenant looks like. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's how you will be my people. Well, he says, here's how I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you all the promises I gave to Abraham. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to give you peace. And I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. That's my end of the covenant. Then God said to the people, your end of the covenant is to be a holy people. And so he gave them, for example, Leviticus. This compendium of laws that doesn't say, you know, you need to make sure that you keep all of these arbitrary laws, but rather that said, this is what a holy people looks like. This is what my holy people look like in the midst of the world that you live in. Now, as the book of Hebrews articulates, that covenant uh, has been has been changed by Jesus Christ. We have a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And the old things have passed away and we got something new. We're going to come back to that new covenant in a moment. But I want you to understand, they operated under this different covenant. God said, if you obey me, then I will bless you. So when the locusts come, what was God saying to his people? You have not obeyed me. When the drought comes and God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And part of my job is to make you prosperous. And you're an agricultural community, which means you need rain. And so when drought comes, what was God saying to his people? You are not obeying me. You're not holding up your end of the covenant. And that means that the rest of the world is not being blessed through you. Do you understand now why God was taking this covenant stuff pretty seriously? It's not because he's like, what are the arbitrary rules I can make up with my ant people today so that I can squish them if they break it? He's saying, I have a plan to show the whole world just how great and wonderful I am and how much I love them. And if my people don't hold up their end of the bargain, no one will see. No one will know. This was eternal sorts of stuff that was on the line. So God said, I will judge you. I will correct you. And finally, uh, God's promise, I will give you peace and safety and security. And in chapter 2, we pick up the fact that an army is coming that would absolutely devastate the land. See, God's correction that he offers to his people It's not arbitrary. It's not random. The things that happen in our own lives. It's not like, well, you know, no one's in control, so I guess these things are going to happen today. 
It's God is always at work. Everything is intentional. There is meaning and purpose in everything that we experience. And it has to do with the covenant that God has made with his people. So when God's people don't keep the covenant, God corrects them. What does that look like for you and me? We talked about Israel, right? Israel was supposed to obey God, keep the law, show the nations who God was through their holy lives. And they didn't do it, so God gave them the curses of the covenant. He took away their prosperity. He took away their safety. You and I, like I said, we live under a different covenant. It's the covenant that's inaugurated in Jesus Christ. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples that when he gave them the cup, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. So this is... This is what God promises to do for us. He promises that I will forgive your sins, which was always the deep underlying problem to everything else. We had become God's enemies through sin. And when God forgives us, he ceases that state of warfare that exists between us. He makes us his children. And now we have a home and a future. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we hear a little bit more about exactly what this new covenant is all about. Chapter 31, verse 31. If you want to remember where the new covenant is, Jeremiah 31, 31. Okay, 31, 31. You can do it. I know you can. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant. After that time, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There's a lot to unpack out of there. I I can't do all of it this morning. But let me just say a couple of things. We already talked about the forgiveness of sin that was at the end. But he says this to begin. "I, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. See, when we come to Jesus Christ, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Something happens to us. It's not an all-me sort of activity where I say, okay, God, that's it. I'm going to follow you forever. I've made that promise, and now I'm saved. It's we say, God, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I promise to follow you together. And then God puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts and says, I will make you a person who can keep that promise. I'll make you a person who can keep that promise. I will put my law in your mind and write it in, their, in your heart. That, that part about writing the law in our hearts. To the ancient Israelites, the heart was the center of the will. Or it was where the will was centered is maybe the right way to say it. Uh, that means that not only will you know what God's law is because he's written it in your mind, but you now have the capacity to obey 
where you didn't before. You have the capacity to obey where you didn't before. And so what's our responsibility? What do we do to be covenant keepers? Well, we, we just cooperate. That's it. See, that's what the whole Old Testament teaches us at the end of the day. Not that God is mean, but that we're dumb. It teaches us that we could never do it on our own. See, anyone who, who reads through this and is like, man, that God sure is mean, is missing the fact that the people were always getting it wrong. And you know why we miss that fact? Because like I said just a few minutes ago, God doesn't put Israel before us for us to consider so that we can go look at those dummies, but so that we would go, oh no, that's what I'm like too. It's the oldest lesson in the world that we all struggle to learn. We all think, we all think this way, that you know, everyone who came before, you know, they were kind of lame and not so smart and they did lots of dumb stuff. But now I'm here and everything's going to be better. This is why every single old person since the beginning of the time has complained about young people. That's why everyone complains about millennials. It's not because they're particularly bad. It's because old people are just doing what they've always done, complaining about the young people. It's so boring, folks. And I don't just say that because I'm at the very top end of the millennial generation. <laughs> I say it because it proves that we still haven't learned that lesson. It's not them who are broken. It's us, all of us. And if you get nothing else out of the Old Testament, at least get that. The problem is us. But God says, I am going to make these people able to obey, finally. So what happens then when we experience something that looks sort of like this day of the Lord, the day when God shows up to judge and to correct, and it comes into our own lives? Well, first, we need to understand what that looks like when it comes into our own lives. See, we need to understand that God was giving covenant curses for covenant unfaithfulness. Sometimes bad things happen, not because we are being corrected, but because we live in a fallen, broken world, and God is going to use that bad or that hard or that difficult or that painful thing to form us to be more like Jesus Christ. But sometimes bad things happen because we're not keeping the covenant the way God called us to do it. And as covenant keepers, we're just called to be people of faith, to believe in God. That's what we offer. Now, it's important to understand that faith is not just saying, I believe these six things about God, and therefore everything is fine. The book of James in the New Testament has a lot to say about that. James says, can someone have faith without works? Of course not. That's a dead faith. See, faith is, you know, if we were to take this is an old example. It's not unique to me. But if we're to take this chair here, it is not faith to say, this chair will hold me. This is faith. It's not faith to say, I believe that God is good. It's faith to live like God is good. 
It's not faith to say, I believe that my sins are forgiven. It's faith to live like our sins are forgiven. Like we've got a new start. Like we don't have to be held down and held back by that old life. It's faith to extend mercy to other people because we have received mercy. It's not faith to go around saying, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong. I know because I believe in the Bible and it tells me everything that I need to know about who's got it wrong. Did you miss the Old Testament? It's faith to say, we have all got it wrong. And the only one who has ever had it right is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to hold on to him. And we need to wait for him. And we need to trust, not that we're going to eventually sort it out on our own, but the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to make it right. And when he does, may I be found faithful. May I be found sitting in the chair and not just talking about it. We owe God our faith. When we don't give it to him, we might experience the withdrawal of some of God's blessings. You can't can't receive the blessings of faith without faith. You start to say, you know, times are hard and my joy is gone. See, that's, that's where we say, I think God's maybe withdrawing those covenant blessings from me. I think I may not be offering the faith that I need to offer to my God. We may say, I'm finding that I do not have the power to overcome sin in my life. That the law doesn't feel like it's written on my heart. Start to say, I think I may not be offering God the faith that he requires to be faithful to his covenant. When those sorts of things happen, then we're in Joel 1. But there is, there's more here. Of course, I've turned away. Oh, perfect. I opened right to Joel 2. These minor prophets are hard to find. Sometimes I'm paging around and you're like, oh my gosh, I know it's here somewhere. Joel 2. Remember the second half of what George read for us, beginning in verse 12? What do we do when we realize God's covenant blessings are being withdrawn, being taken away? What do we do? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I love this line. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't put on a show for me. Just just come to me with your broken heart. I can fix broken hearts, but I can't fix people who are faking it. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. If you've got kids, you ever had that experience where you say, if you do that one more time, insert threat here, right? Because we all know threats are the best way to parent. This is not a sermon on parenting, by the way. And then the kid does it one more time. And you're like, oh no. (laughs) Because I said, if they did this, then I would do this. But I didn't really want to do that. But I said I would. Listen, Listen to who the Lord is. 
He is the one who says, "Ah, locusts, drought, warfare. If you return to me, rend your hearts and not your garments. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Maybe those don't sound like great presents, but let's understand that what he's saying is a restored relationship in every way with God. So, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast. Get what he's saying? He's saying, Bring everyone together. Don't leave a single person out. This is such a pivotal moment in our relationship with God. Grab everyone that you can. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. You know, when people got married in ancient Israel, the husband was exempted from military service for the first year of their marriage. Because that's how much God loves marriage. And that's how significant he said it was. They said, but you know what? Not even husbands and wives will get exempted from bringing the people together to repent. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar and let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We're talking about this in kind of an individualistic sense, right? What if you do this? But it's not just about you. It's about we. It's about all of us together. See, sometimes, uh, maybe more often than we realize, God's saying to us, it's it's not the individuals that are the problem. It's the community. You're not loving each other and caring for each other like people who really put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are not recognizably God's people when you gather. And maybe it's because you got a pastor who's taking you in the wrong direction. Maybe it's because you have elders who are putting up and tolerating sin in the congregation and saying, that's okay. Maybe it's because you are believing things about God that are totally wild and crazy, and there are things you want to believe instead of the things that are true about the Lord, and you're presenting a false gospel to other people. Maybe it's that we're not out caring for our community the way we ought to be. Whatever it is, God says, bring them all together. Let me tell you the, the place where I've heard about this happening most often, where maybe we need to sit down and acknowledge this as well. There was a consultant who came to ECO, uh, the National Gathering, several years ago, and he said, and I'm going to end with this, by the way. He said, you guys, uh, I, I, I do this with lots of churches, where churches that are, are declining, they're losing membership, you know, they are, uh, they're really struggling, especially to reach young people. And uh, we get together and, and we take a look at everything that's happening at the church and we determine, you know, kind of here's some of the problems, here's some of the failures, here's some of the practices and so on. But he says, we never come to those churches and find that there is no sin. And very often the sin that's there is we will care for ourselves before we care for those who don't know Jesus Christ. We have made our good time the priority at the expense of the, the kingdom mission of the gospel mission. He says, when that happens, which is almost every time, we get the whole church together. We blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast. We gather all the people. 
and we repent. So in closing this morning, we got both a short-term application and a long-term one. The short term is if you feel those covenant blessings being withdrawn from your life, that's the time not to say, God, where are you? Why are you messing around? What's your problem? But instead to say, is there sin in my life? Am I not giving God the faithfulness that he asked for in one way or another? And to repent. The second question is long term for us as a church. Where are we not faithful to God's mission? And I don't mean this to be negative in the sense of, you know, let's list another way that we stink and we're no good. But rather in the sense of how can we put ourselves into a position to glorify our God and enjoy him forever? To receive everything that he has planned for us because we've offered him all of our faithfulness.